Hey everybody, welcome back to Simply Holy Living, a practical guide for living the open-handed life every day. And we just got done with Holy Week, which was amazing celebrating it with all of you. And I hope your Easter's were incredible. And now we get to enter into the season of first fruits, sometimes referred to as the festival of weeks, which we'll talk about all that. Um, but this is a lesser known season, but I think it's going to be incredible. I'm really excited about it. And those of you that know me know I've been wanting to celebrate these festivals forever. And I'm hoping that this is finally the year. God, please, it's going to be the year. But I want to be able to explain it. I think it's going to be a great time, but it's going to take a little bit of explanation, um, a little bit of history, a little bit of information on the front end. Um, I usually like to focus on the transformation part, but we definitely need this part to sort of set the stage. So I'm going to attempt in this very first video, which is going to make it a little longer than normal. I usually want to have about a 20 minute video. This was probably going to be longer, but I want to attempt to just lay a foundation, sort of a Holy Seasons 101 or a first fruits for dummies kind of way, because I'm not a theologian. I am not a, uh, a historian. I'm just an avid learner. And so I've read a lot and I'm gonna give you all my resources. So those of you that are scholarly minded and you wanna learn more, you can know where to go check that stuff out. So I'm just gonna give a baseline here. All right, so let's go back to the very beginning. We know that God, um, when his people were in slavery in Egypt, the Israelites were in Egypt and they were slaves. God wanted to pull them out, bring them into the wilderness and finally into the promised land. And so he was sending these plagues to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. The final plague, as you know, was the death angel. And God gave them instructions to take a lamb, slay the lamb and put the blood over their door. Okay, and when the death angel came in, he would see the blood and pass over their house. And that way they were saved by the blood. So when they, when they did that, after that, they're able to come out into the wilderness and God established that as the very first holy season for all time, right? So there, the beginning of the Jewish calendar starts in the spring, which is so cool because it's when the whole rest of the world is waking up. Makes total sense instead of January, but they start in spring. So this is their very first, you know, month. And this is their very first holiday is Passover. Now this does absolutely apply to us as Christians because Jesus was the Passover lamb. We know that he was slain on Passover all those years later, thousands of years later, and his blood now is over us and his blood saves us also. So he was the fulfillment, um, uh, the embodiment actually of that season. We have that. So we absolutely should be celebrating Passover as they did for Ever. Now, after that, they would enter into the time of first fruits, which we're going to talk about, and that would end with Pentecost. And those were your seasons. Those were the holy seasons of spring. Then you go into a hiatus over the summer, and then you enter into the holy seasons again in the fall. And you have three holy festivals that they would have in the fall. And we'll go through those at that time. So how did we become so disconnected with these holidays? Well, the early church, the Christians in the beginning, they actually did celebrate all this. Jesus celebrated all these holidays when, when he was growing up and even to his adulthood. We have proof of that in the Bible. We have um, proof that the early church was celebrating these festivals. And in, even into the first few hundred years of the church, they pretty much stuck with this, this calendar. 
basically because most of them were Jewish. They became Christians. A lot of Jews were becoming Christians and they kept their heritage and they saw the connection, I think, of Jesus and their, their holy festivals and they kept celebrating them. Now, as more Gentiles became Christians, of course, they didn't have that understanding. They didn't grow up doing it like me and you. It seems very foreign and we have to learn it and, you know, we don't know exactly how it works and all of that. So we're always puzzling over it. So Gentiles, but they, the Gentiles sort of adapted to it in the areas where it was largely Jewish. Um, and because the, Jew, the, the Gentiles were being grafted into the branch, as it talks about in Romans. We Gentiles are grafted into our Jewish heritage branch. It's just so cool. But that went on uh, for about 300 years until Constantine became a Christian. If you're familiar with your history, in the 300s, Constantine, the first Roman, Roman ruler ever, became a Christian. And he was able to make some really significant changes that were good, like he stopped all the killing of the Christians. That's good. <laughs> he was able to bring back some fairness. He was able to bring back some of their rights. He was able to, um, you know, sort of Christianize things in a way, you know, instead of all the persecution. But one of the negative things that happened was through him and the Council of Nicaea, we broke off all of our um, attachment to the Jewish heritage. I can't get into exactly why and everything, but they wanted to get rid of the association of Christians to Jews. Hmm. That's an unfortunate thing that happened. And so in that um, way, they wanted to figure out a new way to celebrate the 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 resurrection of Jesus and the birth of Jesus and so they adapted these pagan holidays Easter was a pagan holiday and they Christianized it they put Jesus on top of this pagan holiday that's why you get the bunnies and the and, you know and the eggs and all that and then you get you know Jesus raising from the dead same thing happens at Christmas this is a a different kind of holiday you know that that where we celebrate Jesus's birth um, somewhat uh, arguably arbitrary date, but whatever. We took over these pagan holidays and Christianized them. So that had, that sort of made the, the, uh, um, the disconnect of our Christianity from our Jewish heritage. It is my hope and dream and Jay's too, that we could actually go back to um, the connection between these things because we can only enrich our lives by understanding the, the heritage and all of the, the in-depth uh, um, riches of these, these celebrations. Um, they can only add to us as Christians. And so we're hoping that that is what's going to happen. So that was my five-minute version of why we become disconnected from these um, practices and we would love to be able to bring them back at, to, in order to add a, a depth to our, um, our festivities and the ways that we remember Christ and his suffering and all of that and the way that it all works together. So I'm going to go on now um, from Passover. I feel like we all of us have at least a um, somewhat of an understanding of how Jesus was the Passover lamb and how it um, he is the fulfillment of that. But the thing that we haven't ever really been able to grasp, and I don't, and I still don't, is how the first fruits um, works into this, and it's so cool the way that it works. So now we're going to read from Leviticus, and we're going to go back to when this was originally commanded by God that they celebrate first fruits. This is what it says in Leviticus twenty-three nine through sixteen. So hang with me here. It says, "The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them." 
when you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord a lamb a year old without defect, together with its grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made to the Lord by fire, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering of a fourth of a hen of wine. You must not eat any bread or roasted new grain until the very day you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. Okay, so that's the original command. So now let's break this down a little bit. I want to use our who, what, where, when, why, and how. Okay, so we already know the who. It's the Israelites. That's easy. Let's do what. Okay, what were they supposed to bring? What were they supposed to do? They're supposed to bring in a sheaf. So they have already planted their, their grain and they bring in a sheaf. Well, what is a sheaf? And uh, for those of you that don't know, because we don't live in an agrarian society anymore, and we go to the store to get our sliced bread in a plastic wrapper, a sheaf is actually a bundle of grain, a bundle of grain stalks laid lengthwise and tied together after reaping. I hope I can put a picture up of it, but if you're listening on the podcast, you'll just have to use your imagination. They were also supposed to bring in the rest of the, another sacrifice, which is the lamb, the grain and the drink offerings. And all of this stuff about offerings and sacrifices, we could go, uh, this is a, a rabbit hole of its own that we could all study and it'd be so cool, but we're not gonna do that here. Um, I think the Bible Project does a great job of explaining all that, what like, what do those represent? And I think you could get so much out of it, it's very rich, but we're not gonna do it here. Okay, so let's go on, that's the what, and let's go to when. When were they supposed to do this? Well, it says the day after the Sabbath. Now, this actually becomes into a little bit of controversy later on, and there become a couple schools of thought. Um, was he talking about the Sabbath of the um, Passover, or was he talking about the, the regular Sabbath? The Sadducees thought he was talking about the seventh-day Sabbath, which is, you know, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. The Pharisees thought that he was talking about the... Um, uh, the Passover itself. So there was a bit of controversy that went on then. And actually there's a little bit, two different schools of thought today even, but you know that what's cool about the, you know, the Jewish community is that they allow for differences of interpretation. They say, well, you know, cause in everything that I've read, I'll read books or I'll look on online with, uh, you know, Shabbat.org and they'll say, well, this school of thought thinks this, this school of thought thinks that. And I just think that's so cool that they, allow for differences of interpretation without splitting off and starting, you know, new congregations and all of that. I just, I find that really cool. It's, you know, there's still different ways to interpret it, but it says the day after the Sabbath. So we're going to just go with that. And then the other time that it mentions is it says that it's before 
you consume any new grain of the year. So it was actually sort of forbidden to harvest your grain or eat any of it or, you know, mill any of it and um, bake with it until you've actually gone through the first fruits ceremony or festival. Okay, so those are our wins. Where is they would bring this initial offering on the first day to the temple and it's big and elaborate. Um, celebration, but the rest of the, the, the days, the 49 more days, are going to be done at home. So it's both. It's at the temple and it's at home. How? Well, originally it was a very elaborate celebration that went on on this first day. Not so much now, but I want to read to you from one of the books I was reading um, called the, uh, which one is this? It's the Kasdan book, God's Appointed Times. It says, the Talmud states that a priest would meet a group of Jewish pilgrims on the edge of the city and from there lead them up to the Temple Mount. As they carried their offerings of the first fruits, the priest would lead a praise service with music, praise psalms, and dance. As a group of worshipers arrived at the Temple Compound, the priest would take the sheaves, lift some in the air, and wave them in every direction. So. This is just so cool. By so doing, the whole crowd would be acknowledging God's provision and sovereignty over all the earth. And I just love to picture this, that they, you know, it was like this big parade through town, you know, it start on the outskirts of the town, and then they would all be carrying these offerings, you know, special offerings for God. Um, and they would be coming into the temple and all dancing and singing and praising and all, oh, it sounds awesome to me. And they would end up eventually at the temple where the priests would lift up the sheaves and, you know, wave it east, north, south, east, west, you know, so it's all over the land. It's just so cool. And then they would uh, count the rest of the days. Um, they would have a ceremony at home. The other, how they did, that's how they did the first day. But then the rest of the days, the 49 days, would be by family at home or family unit at home. And they would do it much like you would do a, a Sabbath meal, you know, um, how on the Sabbath there's special, uh, blessings that they would say. Those of you that celebrate Sabbath know that on that day, you would say, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who sets us apart by his commands and commands us to kindle the Sabbath lights. And then there's the other ones who brings forth bread from the earth or, you know, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, who creates the fruit of the vine. There's these blessings that you say for Sabbath. Well, during first fruits, you would say the blessing every night. And, but you would count it, the days. So you would say something like, Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who sets us apart by his commands and commands us to count the sheaves. This is the first day of the Omer, or the first day of the sheaf. Those two words, sheaf, Omer. Uh, Omer is a weight measurement or um, a mass measurement in, uh, in the Hebrew. And so they use that. I, think interchangeably, I don't know, but the counting of the sheaf, you'll hear it, or the counting of the omer. Those both refer to the same things. You see, today's the first day of the omer. Today's the second day of the omer. Today's the third day of the sheaf. It's something like that. So you would just say something like that with your normal nighttime meal is how they would do it. Okay, and so then we have the why. Why do they do this? Well, originally the focus of this was on God's provision for his people. If God has been faithful to bless us with this early harvest, he will surely continue to provide in the late harvest. They were using the proof of the early harvest as 
um, proof of faith. It, it, it's, a, a, it's an acknowledgement that we have faith that God will continue to provide. Looking at the blessings of today gives us faith for tomorrow, if that makes sense. Now, later, the, uh, it was discovered that the giving of the law to Moses occurred 50 days after the Passover in, and the Exodus. So he went up on Mount Sinai 50 days after they had come into the wilderness. So at that point, the rabbi shifted the focus to the provision that God gave mankind in the Torah. And this is so significant because the Torah really was everything. We have to remember what the Torah was to these people. They had been slaves forever. They did not get to decide what they did, when they did it, and how they did it. They were completely in slavery. And then they come into this, the wilderness and they have absolutely no idea how they're supposed to live. The Torah taught them how to live. The Torah taught them how to live for God and with each other. So it was like the blessing of all blessings. It gave them life. And that is why the Jewish people lift up the Torah so much. It's, it's, they kiss the Torah, they dance around. You know, when it comes in, they dance around. They're excited about the Torah. They're excited about learning new things from the Torah. It's just so cool because it was their answer to life and it gave them life. So during this time of first fruits, they will count up to the giving of the Torah. Okay, well, how does all this fit together? Is it about the sheaves? Is it about, you know, the barley harvest and the wheat harvest? Or is it about the Torah? Well, both of them work together and this is how it works. I found this really great quote um, on Shabbat.org and it says this, um, barley, which was what they were commanded to bring in for first fruits. It's barley is the first fruits, wheat is the second fruits. That's Pentecost. Okay, so barley is generally considered to be a grain fit for livestock as opposed to wheat, which is considered to be fit for humans. Thus, commentaries explain that we aren't just counting the days from the Exodus until the day we were given the Torah, Rather, these are meant to be days of refinement. Each one of the 49 days corresponds to another one of the 49 drives and character traits we have within us. Thus, we are commanded to start counting and refining ourselves from when the offering consisting of the barley was brought. For at the onset of this spiritual journey, we are coarse and similar to an animal and we are ready to bring an offering consisting of oh i'm sorry um but by the end of our spiritual journey we are ready and we have refined ourselves in order to be ready to bring an offering consisting of wheat which is the food staple of mankind so we sort of have you know evolved or transformed ourselves from the beginning of this journey to the end. And the barley represents the beginning and the wheat represents the end. And I just thought that was so cool. So the 49 days of refinement lead up to the giving of the Torah. And we, we'll come back to that in a minute. Okay, so the next question, I hope you're still with me. This is so much technical stuff. But the next question is, what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, it's really incredibly cool because remember when Paul was speaking in 1 Corinthians 15 and he says, but the fact is that the Messiah has been raised from the dead, 
the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a man, also the resurrection of the dead has come from one man. For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with the Messiah all will be made alive. But each in his own order. The Messiah is the first fruits than those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming. And sometimes we read that scripture and we, we're talking, it, it, it becomes this order of resurrection thought. But I want to take us back to the fact that he is calling Jesus the first fruits. You know, when the barley sheaves are waved, it's like grain coming up from the earth, lifted up for all to see, right? And it's like when Jesus was talking about how the Son of Man was going to be glorified. Remember when he's saying this? This is at the Last Supper. He's talking to his disciples and he says, Yes, indeed, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it stays just a grain. But if it dies, it produces a big harvest, right? Jesus is the harvest. As for me, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. It's like the resurrection is like the wave offering. He is that sheaf, you know, the, the first fruits. It's just such a cool thing. Um, and if you want to know more about that, there is this really cool thing that you can read about in the um, God's Point of Times, that book that I recommended, um, if you're really into it, about how God amazingly works out this time. And remember how I said the Sadducees and the Pharisees didn't agree about what it meant when it said after the Sabbath, the day after the Sabbath. Well, it turns out that the year that Jesus was actually crucified, it turns out that it makes both of those timelines work together. It's too crazy for me. It's one of those God things where, you know, he's above all time and he can work through centuries and millennia and, you know, I don't know. He's just crazy cool like that. But um, I can't get into it and explain it here because it would make this video even longer than it already is. But it's really, really cool. But just confirming that Jesus really, it really was the first fruits. He was lifted up. And the cool thing is that the way that we've come to celebrate it, even though we celebrate Easter kind of at a different time than Passover. It rarely intersects anymore. You know, it just, it, it, it only intersects every once in a while. And uh, that's kind of discouraging because they're on the lunar calendar, we're on the solar calendar. But the way that we celebrate it really is so cool because it does happen to be that Jesus was uh, crucified on the Sabbath the year that he was. He was crucified on the Sabbath. I mean, I'm sorry, on the on Passover. I even said the wrong thing. I'm going to confuse you even more. But he was crucified, and he did die on Passover. He was in the grave a little bit on that Passover day, and he was in the grave on the Sabbath. And he raises from the dead the day after the Sabbath, which is Sunday. So in a way, you have already been practicing celebrating first fruits. You just didn't even know what it was. Our Easter celebrations really are a first fruit celebration, and that's where we start counting the Omer. We're gonna be on a different time schedule than the lunar calendar, but as Christians, we can start counting that, the Omer on that day of Easter. So Sunday would have been one, Monday is two, Tuesday is three, you're probably watching this on Wednesday or something, whenever you're watching it, Wednesday would have been four. I'll try to keep up with the counting on, uh, on social media, but I know a lot of you are not on that. So anyway, uh, the first fruits, um, was celebrated, you know, by that early church, right? The early church was celebrating it. 
um, Jesus had already been celebrating it and we can enter into celebrating it with him, with our ancestors, even though it's an imperfect way of celebrating it. So how can we do that? How can we celebrate it? We've already been celebrating our Easter celebration, but how can we enter into this this 49 days now? How can we be a part of that? Well, I think it's important to enter into the spirit of the season without getting unduly focused on the historical details. You know, we don't need to focus on all the details. Am I doing it right? Um, if you're doing it at all, if you're trying, I believe that God sees the intention. God blesses the effort. He blesses the intention of our hearts. And we can apply this to our life. If you think about the original writing in Leviticus, it says, when you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain that you harvest. Okay, we can make that become applicable to us because we can read it in the spirit in which it's given. When you enter into your promised land, you know, when you entered into your eternal life at baptism and you reap the harvest of the life that you've been given in God, then bring him an offering at the top, on top of, off the top of all you've been given each year. And that's really kind of what we're doing is we are, we are, we are going, God, thank you. And we are remembering all we've been given. We're taking up our first fruits. We're, we're counting it. And we're saying, thank you, Jesus. And we take these 49 days of refinement. I mean, that's what the Jewish people are doing. They're having these 49 days of refinement. And we're turning it into 49 days of our own refinement. You know, that whole 49 drives of man, that's a whole rabbit hole that you could go into. They actually do have these. I, I, I found a, a, a podcast or some sort of audio thing where they go through these 49 drives of man. I'm not going to make, make anybody go down that rabbit hole. I think that we can look at it similarly, though. We can look at all of these things that, you know, tend to enslave us these you know these earthly desires these these desires of our flesh and you could try to come up with 49 of them of your own i wrote out a ton of them we take these things uh, we can talk about all of our addictions our addictions that come up the porn social media political shows you know the what are they called the um talk shows that you know uh talk radio and all of the political stuff that goes on, the alcohol, food, Netflix. We can talk about all the ways that pride can manifest itself inside of us. Uh, people pleasing, worry, opinions of others, the fear of rejection, the fear of the future, greed, the focus on status, the focus on pleasure, a low grade anger in our hearts, talking too much, not listening to other people, having fits of rage, cursing out loud or cursing in your heart, unforgiveness, um, bitterness over past hurts. We could be giving into cynicism, cynicism with the mission of the church or the mission or the finances of the church or the leadership of the church, just cynicism has taken over your heart or gossip. Maybe we've gotten into gossip and trying to control others or maybe angry parenting and trying to control our kids. Passive aggressive communication, negativity, complaining, maybe we started tolerating complaining, self-reliance, self-protection, arrogance, boasting, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, 
It could be impurity or debauchery or adultery or self-righteousness or hatred or discord or jealousy or fits of raging over. And now I'm starting to sound like Galatians 5, right? Racism, cowardice, all of these things. You know, we need to very practically speaking, get in touch with what is getting in the way of us actually being witnesses for Christ. What is stopping you from reaching out to people? What excuse is coming up? What have we projected onto the, it's the church's fault that I'm not doing this. It's my spouse's fault that I'm not doing that. It's my kid's fault. If I just had this, if I just had that, if I had had a better education, if I had a better life, if I had more money, if I had whatever, whatever we're blaming, let's stop blaming and actually get in touch with what is the sin that is keeping us from being a witness for Christ, reaching out to other people, being like Jesus in our home, where are the places that Satan has gotten a foothold and possibly made it a stronghold? And I think these are distinctions that we need to make. You know, some of us do have still a stronghold in our life, something that we have suffered from since we were kids, something that happened to us when we were children that created a defense mechanism in us that we have not ever been able to get rid of. And we still go to it year after year after year after year. And we're now in our 50s, right? That's a stronghold. But, or it could be something that's new to us, that's just a foothold. Satan has somehow gotten his foot in the door where he never had his foot in there before. I've never been like this. I've said this a lot lately, like, I never used to be like this. <laughs> but Satan has gotten a new foot in the door. Where has Satan got a foothold in your heart or has established a stronghold? Remember these words from Romans. Romans 6, it says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We are supposed to have a new life, ever-increasing glory. There are no glory days in the past. Our glory is ahead of us, ever increasing. Verse 5 goes on, it says, for if we have been united with him in death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And you have died, disciple. When you got baptized, you died. That means you have been set free from all sin. But sometimes we still live as if we are still slaves. We have been forgiven and set free even if we still behave like a slave because sometimes we reach back into Egypt and we bring it out with us into the promised land. We bring that stuff. It's like bringing those household gods, you know, from the past and we bring them back and we start worshiping them again. And we, we enslave ourselves again to these things. You know, I have a couple of analogies that um, that make sense to me. <laughs> and um, I've shared them, I think, before, but there are two of them. One of them is the, um, the, the super suit that 
Spider-Man was given. Okay, so we know Spider-Man, young Spider-Man was given this incredible suit by Iron Man. <laughs> okay, and he gave him this incredible suit that allows him to do all stuff. But it's so incredible that he knew he wouldn't even be able to use it the right way. He might even hurt himself. So there's these kind of parental controls on it. Because if he was able to unlock that suit, he would just be too much for him to even handle. And I think that's like the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like this super suit that we were given at baptism, but it's so powerful and so amazing. We don't even know how to use it. We don't know how to be set free. And so we sit in slavery, in bondage. We're still slaves because we don't even know how to, to embrace the freedom of the Spirit and how to walk in the Spirit, and how the Spirit frees us from that, from all of that slavery. Another analogy is a movie that I saw so many years ago, decades ago, I don't know how long ago, and I think it was called Two Brothers, but it was about these two uh, tigers. Some of you might remember this. And they were living in the wild, they were in the jungle, but one of them got captured by, uh, by humans, by a circus gang or whatever, I don't know. He was sold to the circus. And he uh, was sort of, you know, he was abused, he was tortured, he was trained with the whip and the chain, and he was um, basically just um, pummeled into submission. And he was put on display, but he, in the, he was put in a cage, and he was only taken out by the whip and um, by the chain. So the movie um, is really actually hard to watch because it's just so hard to watch this animal being abused. You know what I'm saying? But I think it's such a perfect image of how Satan abuses us, how he takes this beautiful creation, you, he takes this beautiful creature that God created and he pummels us into submission. He tricks us, he captures us, he takes us into his circus <laughs> and we're, you know, we're put in the cage and he, and he keeps us trapped by this fear of the whip and the chain. But as the movie progresses, the whole point of the movie is that the other brother, the free tiger, somehow comes through and he rescues his brother and the, the circus is put out of business or something, and then the, the, the tiger is just there in his cage. Well, the tiger, the cage is opened. But interestingly enough, the tiger is so afraid, he's been so abused and so trained by fear that he doesn't even get out of the cage. Even though the door is opened, he still cowers and just sits inside of his cage. And I think this is us in so many ways. We are still cowering in the cage, some cage in our life. Maybe not every part of our life, but some part of our life is still trapped in that cage because the fear traps us there. But you know that the Bible says that perfect love will cast out fear. It will drive that fear out. The Spirit can set us free. You know, in the movie, he eventually does sort of, you know, finally make his way out. After he peeks out enough time, he realizes he's safe and he finally comes out of the cage. You know, the spirit is what provides that safety for us to come out of our cages, to come out of this sin, where the, the, the slavery to sin, where we still allow Satan to have a hold of us. I love the, the part where Jesus says, you know, Satan, the prince of this world is coming but he has no hold on me. And I'm telling you, disciple, he has no hold on you.
And that's what I picture these next 47 days being about is learning how to come out of those cages and letting the spirit lead us to freedom in all of the areas of our life so that there'll be no cages left in our hearts and we'd be set free from every single cage. So that's my dream for these days. Hopefully we have a lot of days to, to work on this together. So what do you do right now? Well, today I want you to do three things. Number one, try to, um, try to identify what uh, is a stronghold in your life or what is a foothold and decide, I am going to get rid of these things. I want to be set free and tell your group or tell your discipleship partner or tell whatever it is you have a prayer partner, however it is in your life, whoever helps you to be accountable to God, tell them what you want to be set free from, that you want to finally say, that's it, no more of this. This is not of God. I don't want it anymore. Curse the fig tree. Okay, um, so you're going to do that. And then number two, I want you to commit to praying for each other every day. Just commit to praying for each other to be set free of those things. And then each night, count the days. Count the omer. Count the sheaf. Do something different in your nighttime routine to help you remember this. Um, it can be at dinner time that you just do it like with the traditional blessing and that maybe that's where your family is. You can even print out things that are almost like uh, an advent calendar where you count the, the days. You know, it's kind of cool. Um, but that may not work for every family. Change your routine and somehow. Just if you're on your own, if you're the only Christian in your household, decide you're going to, instead of watching Netflix for the next, you know, 49 days at night, I'm going to um, pray each night and I'm going to remind myself of this new journey that I'm on these, these days. You know, count it down. Or maybe it's just a, a, a quick prayer with your spouse at night. Or maybe it's just a little difference in your routine. I do something different to remind yourself to count down the days. And I'll try to help you out on social media for those of you there that are there. But you can do this on your own. You don't need it. And Get ready because we are counting. Oh, I keep saying counting down the days. I'm supposed to say counting up the days because it's supposed to be less about what we're not doing and more about what we are doing. The instead, not in, not this, instead this. So if you're trying to get rid of something, you're also trying to add something. I'm adding, you know, self-control. I'm trying to add that. So anyway, we're gonna keep it in a positive light and we're gonna count up to Pentecost and on Pentecost, we're gonna have the biggest celebration ever. So um, I thank you for watching all the way to the end of this video, even if it took you three days or something to watch it. I'm so excited to be on this journey with you and let's do this together. I hope this helps you to walk in the spirit, to keep your hands open until 